0: Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Not long after I became a uh, volunteer firefighter many, many years ago, I had an opportunity to take the emergency medical technician class, so I did. Uh, And, uh, you know... uh, uh, People use the word medic or paramedic to refer to just about anybody who comes out on a, a medical call. That's not quite accurate, of course. The, the entry-level people are called EMTs or emergency medical technicians, and then the advanced people are called paramedics. And the EMTs are, are trained and prepared to do what's called basic life support. And uh, if you are an ambulance driver, you have to be an EMT in the state of Washington. That's how the uh, regulations work. There is, there are certainly lower levels of preparation as well. So I took my EMT training and uh, enjoyed that and passed my written test and my practical test, got that special patch for my uniform and uh, uh, began responding to calls. And it wasn't long after I finished my training, that I got a, a medic call along with whoever else was in the fire department at that time. We got a call, and the way it would work, of course, is you, you get the page, you respond to the fire department. First two guys take the rig and go, and everybody else goes straight to the call, if, if, and if you live closer to the call, we would go straight to the call anyway. That sped up our response time. So I got to the fire department, I got in the aid car, and uh, started it up and pulled out on the ramp, and I'm waiting. And, uh, you know, I'm waiting for somebody else to come. And uh, it was highly unusual for there to only be one person there. Um, in fact, uh, sometimes we were fighting to see who'd get to drive, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm there waiting, waiting, and across the street was the gas station where a captain in the fire department, he owned the gas station. Um, he came over and he goes, He goes, uh what's going on? I go, well, nobody else is coming. And so we put out a second page, and we waited a while, which is probably two minutes. And he he says, well, you better go. See, he wasn't going to go with me, because not only was he not an EMT, but he didn't want nothing to do with medical calls. And so he says, you better go. And I thought, I'm all by myself. (laughs) He says, you better go. And so I went. And uh, I don't remember if I prayed, but I should have. Because I was going by myself to an aid call, and I'd only been trained uh, just recently. I went, uh, I remember it was not an extremely serious call, a person was taken to the hospital by the paramedics who came later. I must have done okay, because the person survived, and I didn't get in trouble. (laughs) There were other times when I did get in trouble, but that wasn't one of them. I was scared being on my own, but I did know what to do because I had been trained. I said, okay, I have to do this, I have to check that, I have to do this, and so on. And paramedics said, did a good job, you know, whatever. Good preparation makes for good work. We've been talking about the subject of communication, conflict, and reconciliation. The real work we're getting to is the work of reconciliation. But reconciliation of problems between people cannot happen without the preparation we've been talking about. And so I just want to review that briefly to to get that into your mind. Uh, The quality of reconciliation is based on the preparation and the approach To reconciliation. And the first broad topic we talked about was communication. Communication comes from a good heart. Comes from a good wisdom. And and by the way, if you missed these earlier sermons, they're available on the website. Don't try to take notes now because I'm going to hurry through this. Comes from a good heart. Comes from good wisdom. Is built on truth. Must build up and not tear down. Must not be profane or obscene. Must demonstrate meekness. And then we looked at the topic of anger, because when we have a conflict with people, when things don't go the way we want them to go, anger is the most common response to that. And to some extent, anger is a God-given response to injustice. God never condemns anger. He only condemns anger that is sinful. It is possible for anger to, to... It is possible for us to allow our anger to cause us to sin. It's also possible to use anger as a motivator to do the right things. Anger can control us and be sinful. Sin is multiplied by unrighteous anger. And then we looked at the subject of prayer. We need to ask God for help. We need to ask God for spiritual protection. We need to give God our anxieties. We need to ask God to save the unbeliever if there is an unbeliever involved. And we need to ask God to help us do His will. And then last we looked at We looked at attitudes. Two attitudes we have to have. One is Am I coming to the process of reconciliation with humility? And the other attitude is, am I coming to the process wanting righteousness for everyone? That's me and the other person or persons. Now, that's a lot of work. Uh, The EMT class used to be 120 hours uh, in the classroom, plus some other things. That's a lot of work. There's a lot of stuff to learn. Do you want somebody helping you in a physical crisis who hasn't prepared themselves to help you? No. Why would we think that we know everything we need to know to go into reconciliation without opening God's word to see what God wants us to know? We've got to do the preparation. We've got to have our hearts right as we come into an attempt to reconcile a relationship. When my son played football, uh, I was a trainer on the team and I got to watch the coach pretty closely. And one of the things that impressed me about the coach was he told the players, I won't let you go on the field unless you're ready. Now, what he meant by that was he knew the difference between somebody who was physically fit and not physically fit, somebody who was prepared to take a hit as much as you can ever be prepared. And he said, I won't let you go on the field unless you're prepared. And so they had a certain amount of confidence that when they went on the field, they were ready for what was going to come at them. They were fit to do what they were going to try to do. All of this preparation work is what makes you fit to do reconciliation. If you have had failed attempts at reconciling problems... One of the places to look would be the preparation. But then once we've done the preparation, we have to do the work of, re- of, of reconciliation, which begins with a confrontation often. Read Matthew 18 with me, please. Follow as I read Matthew 18, verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray... Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more than the sheep, more than the sheep, more than over the sheep that were lost, that that were not lost. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If you will not hear, take one or two more with you. We're just going to stop at verse 15 today. You know, I've never noticed before that these verses on reconciling a relationship come right after Jesus said, when one sheep gets lost, people go after the one sheep it helps me to understand again and afresh that the heart of confrontation is restoration confronting somebody in a christian sense is not about punishment i would even offer this to those of you who have parents of young who, who are parents of young children currently confronting your child about their behavior is not about punishment And even the physical discipline you may give is not about punishment. It's about restoration and change. A child can't pay for what they've done. Only Christ can pay for sin. But confrontation, whether it's of a small child or an adult, the purpose should be restoring. Restoring from sin. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. I understand that sometimes we think other people have sinned, and if we're wise and careful and godly, when we go to them, we may find out they actually did not sin. But the perspective we have is looking at a person saying, the person has done wrong and needs to be confronted. And that's what God says, if your brother sins against you. Why do we go, why do we confront? To help them return from the life of sin. We want them to walk in the joy and peace of God. The words against you, interestingly here, if you look at verse 15, if your brother sins against you, those words aren't in all of the ancient manuscripts, so it could just be, if your brother sins... Go and tell him his fault between you. In other words, it may not be that I have been personally offended, but it may be that my brother has sinned and I need to help him. I need to help her. I need to help them be right with God. Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We'll talk more about this both today and in the weeks to come. But there's never a, there, there should never be, and there does not need to be, any sense of superiority in those who go to help. When God says, those of you who are spiritual, what he's saying is, if you are walking with the Lord day by day, you are a righteous person, a spiritual person, whereas the one overtaken in a sin has slipped from that righteous path, and now they're walking in the flesh. So he says, you that are spiritual, go to that one and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness, never a spirit of superiority. The heart of confrontation is Restoration. Having had knee surgery and the challenge that it brings, I am much more aware of other people who are limping or using a cane. I don't think I used to notice it so much, honestly. Um, part of the reason I notice it is because others notice me limping. Oh, is something wrong with your leg, there, buddy? Yeah, yeah. Still getting over that. This week, I saw a woman laboring with a walker like this at Fred Meyer I thought oh boy lady if I could if I could relieve you of that pain I would we need to look at other Christians and say if I could relieve you of that pain I would that's the heart that God wants us to have it's not a heart of punishment it's not a heart of getting some relief for our own sense of hurt. It's a heart that says, I'd like to help relieve your burden. We need to imagine the hurt that people are in and ask God to give us the courage to help them get back on the path with Him. The heart of confrontation is restoration from sin. The need for confrontation is the existence of sin. Go to your brother, tell him his Sin. This requires the person who is going to look honestly at words and behaviors and assess whether there is sin or not. Because we also have conflict over preferential issues. And, you know, we we know that sin is defined in the Bible. (laughs) Um. I appreciate when the camp kids are honest enough to say, no, I really didn't learn that much new stuff. Okay? You know what that means? It means they've been well taught in our Sunday school, in our Awana club, and in their home. And I understand that. Sometimes, sometimes it's 90% old stuff and 10% new. Uh, this isn't new, is it, to you? What did you learn today in church? Well, I learned that the Bible defines sin. Duh. Okay. Now here's where the here's where the big duh really comes in. If you're going to confront somebody about sin, it should be something written in the Bible. Because if you're calling it a sin and it's not written in the Bible, you might have misidentified it. You know. Obviously there here here are some sins that come to bear when we confront uncontrolled anger, physical attack, lying, cheating, sexual sin, quarreling gossiping. Those are sins that God mentions in the Bible. Those are things we might be confronting people about. The Bible defines sin. If we think somebody has sinned, we should be able to open the book and show them their fault. Now, one of the words that gets substituted for sin is the word offend. You offended me. Now, we know that the word offense is in the Bible. In fact, the, the Bible says, don't give anybody an offense. And so we've, we've sort of mistakenly mashed some stuff together and said, if you offend me, you've sinned. Well, if you offended me in the biblical sense, that would be true. What does the Bible mean when it uses the word Offense. There are two different words translated offense in the New Testament. And the first one means to snare, and the second one means an obstacle. And the idea is that uh, if if somebody was walking along and somebody, you know, I'm walking along and somebody throws the obstacle in my path, they have offended me. They have caused me to stumble. The other word, snare, is actually the word in Greek that referred to the little, part of the, the little part of the trap where you catch an animal where you put the bait. The bait looks attractive to the uh, animal and the animal goes after it, but when the animal gets it, he's ensnared. He's, you know, the fish with the worm. He gets hooked up by the hook. And so the scripture uses these two different words. And these two different words are used in in uh, they're used interchangeably, but in only two contexts. And the first context is the context of Christian liberty. Christian liberty. Christian liberty is the biblical concept that within God's parameters, I have freedom to make choices. For instance, when it the the specific examples in the scripture, the things they argued about. One of them was what day of the work week do you go to church? There's nothing ungodly about if we were to have a church service on Monday night, but not Sunday. God doesn't say there's anything wrong with that. It says you sanctify the day to yourself. There's a choice that can be made. I would not have a problem with the people who wish to worship on Saturday if they didn't try to tell me it is the only godly day to worship. Okay, I have the freedom to make that choice. I have the freedom to make choices about... You know uh, other things within God's parameters, but that freedom has a limit. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now we look at that and say, "Well, you know, brother so and so said he was offended because of what I did, so I can't do it." No, wait a minute. Remember the two meanings to make somebody fall by putting an obstacle in their way and to hook them up when they weren't looking. What's it talking about? It's talking about causing a weaker brother, an immature Christian, to fall into sin because of our behavior. I'll give you the most clear example to me today. Okay, I, I like to say that I never went to a tavern till I became a pastor. And that's the truth. And the reason I went when I became a pastor is I became an EMT. And I used to go to the tavern on tavern calls when people would be stone cold, passed out, drunk. We don't know whether they're dead or alive, and they call us to go figure it out. Okay. And I've been to a lot of taverns on calls like that and others. Okay. I don't drink. And in part, I have my parents to thank for that because they didn't drink and they taught me not to. And I was pretty sure if I ever held a beer to my lips, my dad would kill me. (laughs) Okay. Is it okay to drink a beer? Now, I'm going to preach a sermon on this someday. Yes. Did Jesus drink fermented wine? I believe he did. I believe it was cut with water. You can do the research on it yourself. But I believe it's, it's within the parameters of righteousness to drink a fermented beverage. Not to the point of drunkenness. That's a whole other sermon. I've chosen not to drink in part because, as a spiritual leader, there might be people in our church who have recovered from alcohol addiction or the sinful addiction to alcohol, and I know that there are. And if I was to to somehow say, it's okay, it's fine, and they come to my house, oh, you can handle it, you're a Christian, the Lord will protect you, and I, I essentially encourage them to drink, and they fall back into drunkenness, that is what the word offend means. And if I should take my liberty, where I'm not tempted to drunkenness, let's say, and use it in such a way that others fall back into sin, then I have offended them. And the scripture says I should voluntarily limit my behavior in such a way that I will not cause anybody else to fall into sin. Now the scripture doesn't say that I should limit my behavior on what makes everybody else mad. In other words, well, I don't like that, you know. I wore a pair of jeans to preach in on a Sunday night service once. And a dear old brother who's with the Lord made a comment. Okay? Now, I don't wear jeans most of the time. I was raised by a dad who worked in a men's clothing store. You know, I'm really quite comfortable in the suit and tie. But I did not offend that brother. Oh, I might have offended him in the American sense. But like this? No. No. He didn't even get really upset. He just had to make a little needling comment, you know. Okay, But that's how we like to use it. That offends me! Therefore, you can't do it. No, that's not the scriptural sense. This is the scriptural sense. And so we need to limit our behavior. I had a friend in college who was kind of a technical guy. He was one of the early computer programmers, had a really nice stereo. And I had this this archaic thing called an LP, a record, a piece of vinyl on which music was recorded. And I wanted it put onto another ancient thing, a cassette tape. And so I took it to my friend. He had a really nice stereo. And I said, would you record this for me onto cassette? And so he did, and when I came to pick it up, he he essentially said this. I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't remember the exact words, but he said, don't ask me to do this again. I don't think this music really honors the Lord. Now, I don't know if I knew it completely about him then, but I know his testimony now, and he was literally a guy who smoked marijuana every day, every morning before he went to work, Every day at lunch, he went home and smoked it, and every night he smoked it, and he literally lived in the drugs and rock and roll culture, while at the same time, computer programming, which tells you why computers are what they are today. <laughs> but this fella associated really upbeat music in the Christian sense, he associated that with rock and roll and drugs and that whole culture in the unchristian sense. And he said, don't bring me any of this music to record again because I don't think it honors the Lord. So I didn't bring it to him again. See, that it, and see for him, now he was not offended at that point. When would the offense have come? The offense would have come if I somehow pushed this on him or I I lived in such a way that he started listening to more of that, and then he went back and said, you know, that stuff I used to listen to wasn't too bad, and he started listening to that, and he started remembering the good old days, and the friends, and getting high, and he fell back into his old life. That's what this word means. And so, so yes, should 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 we stop doing anything that offends people? Yes, if we understand what God says. There's another context of offense, and it's the context of sharing the gospel with unbelievers. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We know that verse. What about this one? Give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but but the profit of many that they may be saved. This offense has something to do with getting people saved. And by the way, look what the Apostle Paul says, I please all men. I just want to say, really, Paul? (laughs) You please all men? That cannot be talking about the little petty things of life over which we get offended. That's talking about the way he lived when it came to the gospel ministry. And that comes right back to some of the issues they were dealing with had to do with food, uh, had to do with days of worship, uh, you know, um, had to do with whether their beard was long or shaved, their hair, different, there's some different things that had to do with Jewish law. And so what the Apostle Paul did, if he was going into Jerusalem to preach the gospel, he conducted his life like a Jewish person would within the Old Testament parameters. If he was going to Greece, He would conduct his life in a way that would be suitable to them, not going into sin. And let's just put this in real shoe leather for the Apostle Paul. He would have ate ham in Athens, but not in Jerusalem. You understand the pork issue for Jews? I mean, it's that kind of thing. He said, I am all things to all men. Why? That by all means I may win some. This is about the gospel. I give you a a prime example of this in today's world. We support a missionary in a country that I won't name because this goes out onto the internet, is in a country with a majority of people who oppose Christianity. And there are two major religious groups in that country. One of them doesn't eat pork, and one of them doesn't eat beef. And so our missionary said to me, and he is a national from that country, Okay, He said, we eat a lot of chicken. <laughs> Give no offense. That would be a spiritual offense to those people. They would look at him and they would not even listen to his message if he was breaking their dietary rule. That's what it means to offend somebody biblically. Now, how does this affect confrontation? We need to be careful to separate disagreements and preferences and perceptions from actual sin. Now, we still need to work at peaceful relations even when it's a disagreement. You know, uh, we're going to have chocolate chip instead of coconut cookies. Oh, I hate coconut. (laughs) No, I don't hate coconut, by the way. I'll take either kind. You know, can we we have disagreements about stuff that's little and piddly, and sometimes it's medium. You know, how are we going to do this? Or, you know, how are we going to organize that? Those Those are legitimate disagreements, differences of opinion. We have to work them through. But it is not a sin. And it is not an offense. Just because somebody did something that I don't like, it doesn't mean they have sinned. Or that I have been offended. I need to work those things out. But when. Something rises to the level of sin. There needs to be confrontation. And the action of confrontation needs to be personal. The scripture says. Verse 15. If your brother sins. Go and tell him his fault. Between you and him. Alone. Now. I understand. That there is somewhat of a prescription a plan a procedure being given by christ but i also know that there are principles and here's what i mean by that galatians chapter 6 says if somebody is overtaken in a fault you and that's a plural you who are spiritual go and restore him matthew 18 says go and tell him your sin between you and him alone The thing that I want you to understand is sometimes we get hung up on on the details of following what we think is a scriptural procedure, and I think we would be wise to grab the principle. The principle is, look, if you see a sin in your brother, you go talk to him. Would it be okay to take someone with you? Sure it is, but God knows how we are built, he knows what he is going to bless, and he says, go and tell him your sin between you and him alone. God could have left the word alone out. He could have just said, go and tell him his sin, but he added the word alone. And so we say, okay, I need to go to him. The greater question I want to ask is, why don't we go to the people that we believe have sinned? Well, number one, because it's hard. It's hard. If you were to put stuff on a hard scale, you'd have witnessing to an unbeliever here, and right next to it is going to your brother who sinned. It's hard. It's hard. It's going to be, it's, you know, we imagine how they're going to receive it. Whatever. It's hard. It's easier to go to our best friend who will support us, It's easier not to find out, I might have made a mistake also in this process. It's hard when the other person won't admit what's wrong. But no matter what we expect to happen, or what does happen, there is no way to justify any action except telling the brother or sister their fault between us and them. The most popular approach by most Christians is this. Oh, I don't need to say anything. I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to let it go, and then I'm going to turn around and talk to other people about it. But I'm not going to actually confront anybody about it. Friends, if something rises to the level that we think it is a sin, It needs to be confronted. If it's not to that level, then we need to let it go and walk on. But either way, it's that person and God or nobody that we talk to. When we finally decide that God wants us to go, how do we go? The method of confrontation is gentle. First of all, we've got to be truth tellers. That, you know, that's obvious, One of those great big does, but here's the verse that goes with it. Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things to him. Now, why would I have to say there? We need to be truth tellers. Here's why. The things that you have dreamed up about this person and the situation are not the truth. The truth is what actually happened. The truth is the words that were actually said. The truth may include your reception or your perception voiced in that way. Brother, when you called me a jerk, I felt terrible. Okay, and I'm, I'm using as generic and silly a words as I can so as not to offend anybody somebody said something and we received something there's a whole field of communication that talks about what the what the speaker intended what the speaker said and what was heard (laughs) and sometimes people say things and we get impressions and it is not what they intended but we did get that impression. So it is honest to go and say you said this or you did that and here's how I received it or perceived it or felt it. Now that that doesn't make it true in them but it makes it true for you to share from your heart. We need to go with facts, not judgments. A judgment is when we say you said this and that's what you meant. You did this, and I know what your intention was. No, that's a judgment. God says, we go and we say, you said this, here's how I received it. Can you help me to understand it? You see, we have to be truth seekers who who really listen. Excuse me, we have to be truth tellers and truth seekers And so we go, with this kind of a mentality, we go to listen and to hear it out before we decide how we're going to respond. One of my faults as a parent was knowing exactly what went on. Can I get a witness? For those of you that are new, that's my daughter. And so many times I had to apologize. I'm trying to do better at that, not just as a parent. You know, you hear something and your first thought ought to be, I need to hear some more. See, he who answers a matter before he really hears it, It's a folly and a shame. You need to be a truth seeker. Are you seeking the truth in the confrontation or are you just seeking to be justified in your own perspective? That's not being a truth seeker. James says, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. A truth seeker. The person who is interested in righteousness asks questions to find out what they don't know they presume that the the teller presumed i presume i'm not perfect i presume you know i heard this i saw this you did this whatever now here's what i heard here's what i felt here's what i perceived is that what you intended a truth seeker then we have to be a grace giver a grace giver. You see, when we go and confront and we we ask questions and explanations are given, perhaps apologies are given, the question is then how do we receive that? How do we respond to the explanations others give for their behaviors and words? Here's how God says to respond. Love believes all things and hopes all things. I will tell you the truth, I did not understand that verse till I started doing marriage counseling. Because when there's been a breakdown in a marriage, the two parties do not believe each other. God says, as a Christian, you need to look at this other person with whom you are confronting and reconciling, and when they offer an explanation, your heart response needs to be okay. Now, I understand the whole idea of building trust and so on, that in terms of restoring the relationship, that's another subject. But the question is, do you respond in faith, believing? Do you respond in hope that God is at work? The wisdom that is from above, the godly wisdom, is pure, than peaceable, gentle. What's that say? Willing to yield, full of punishment? Full of self-justification? No, full of mercy. Mercy, which means, oh, you know, you, you misspoke, you misdid. When I was a youth pastor, boy, I, I was wet behind the ears and green everywhere else. And I didn't know anything about the ministry. And people used to criticize me all the time. They never came to me. They'd go to my senior pastor. And one time, I was criticized for how I sat on the platform. Okay. I, you know, we used to have the, the the pastoral pews, and I would sit on the platform, and I sat with my I sat with my legs apart, and I you know. E- either I'm I've told myself this or it's true. I'm rarely comfortable in any chair, and so I'm constantly fidgeting around, you know. <laughs> I'm ADD whatever. So, I'm trying to get comfortable in this pastoral pew, and the person in the church says to my pastor, He's not very spiritual. Really? How? Look at the way he sits. <laughs> Where's a chair? Give me a chair. So, I learned to sit like a pastor. and nod you think I'm joking or exaggerating I am not the wisdom that is from above is full of mercy it's willing to yield we got to be grace givers we have to We have to go and listen. We have to share our concerns, share our burden. And then we have to listen. And when we hear the explanation, we have to be a grace giver. We'll be talking more about that in future weeks. But this brings us right back to our premise. Is reconciliation your goal or is retribution your goal? One of the reasons we're not grace givers is because we really want to punish this person somehow, some way. God says, no, it's not about that. It's about the two of you working out whatever these sins were between you and, and then growing together. One of the early lessons I learned as a firefighter was not to put water on the flames. I I was hosing something down for all I was worth. <laughs> Nothing greater than getting on the end of a good inch and a half line just blasting water out there. You know, that's what it's about being a firefighter, that and driving fast, you know. And the chief comes over and says, "Put the water down there." You know what he taught me? Fire always starts at the bottom and works its way up. The flame isn't where the fire is. It's just the evidence of the fire. The problem is there. If you don't cool that off, you are not going to get rid of this. Whoa, whoa, there you go. Put her out. You see, putting the water on the flame, kind of, you know, a big spray, made sense to me. It was my common sense. But it wasn't right. And so I learned to do it the right way. Just because something makes sense to you doesn't make it the right way to do things. We cannot substitute our way for God's way when it comes to reconciling relationships. God says, go tell your brother or sister there's sin between you alone. And if we want to live in peace, then we'll follow God's plan. Heavenly Father, help us. We... We like to do what's easy. Uh, We like to do what's quick. Help us to do what is right. And as we do that, give us your peace, not just to individuals, but to relationships and to our church and to our families and to our job sites. Help us to do what you've said so that we can live in peace. I pray in Christ's name, amen.